When it comes to housing, the general consensus is we are beyond crisis levels. Officially, the typical American renter is now rent burdened, meaning more than 30% of their income goes on housing. This situation is now characterized as dire, but this didn't happen overnight. Rents have been going up faster than incomes since the 1970s. Real estate developers are increasingly at the center of this debate, as elected officials grapple with just how to deal with this. I'm Miriam Hall. My guest today is Alicia Glenn. She was the Deputy Mayor for Housing and Economic Development under former Mayor Bill de Blasio and now runs M Squared, a real estate development and investment platform that's raised $107.6 million for its Equitable Housing Solutions Fund, which will aim to invest in mixed-use, mixed-income projects across the nation. In our conversation, we're talking about the housing policies before the legislature right now. Comparing the political climate under Governor Kathy Hochul versus Andrew Cuomo, and why she's not scared of good cause eviction. You know, it doesn't strike me as crazy that people who are in good standing in the United States of America and work hard should be able to stay in their apartment if they've been good tenants. She also discusses the surprisingly slow progress when it comes to women and people of colour in major roles in the industry. No, it's not going to happen overnight, but I mean, at some point you have to really shock the system. I mean, this is getting ridiculous. First, though, she's speaking about M Squared's investment strategy. Back in 2020, she told me she was going to be focused outside the city. M Squared now has a fund focused on New York and a project in Inwood, a mixed-income, mixed-use residential development. And I asked her about the shift. Part of my thinking then, which is still very much um, front and center, is a lot of the things that I was able to do when I was deputy mayor in New York and many of the more innovative and interesting um, mixes of development that we've done in the city, whether it's affordable and not affordable, whether it's even mixing uses of retail and community facility and office and you know, just about any kind of project you can imagine has been done in New York. I really felt strongly that that creativity and that expertise um, was something that other parts of the city really, sorry, other parts of the country really needed investors who understood how to put those deals together. And so the theory of the case at the beginning was we'd be the first people to go across the country and really invest in these new cool um, kinds of projects and really help other cities that were in crisis. That is still the case, but I think that, you know, I guess I really am a creature of habit and the investors that we have have also been very much asking us, which I think is a real um, affirmation of our strategy, you know, you guys really are subject matter experts in what's going on in New York City, so we would also like to invest with you specifically in New York. So it's not one or the other, it's both. So maybe in, you know, when we last spoke, trying to start a firm in the middle of the pandemic was hard enough. I didn't know if I could do it all, but now I'm pretty hell-bent on making sure we can do it all. We can focus on New York, but we could also export our expertise and bring new models across the country. You were the deputy mayor under de Blasio. Um, basically, they call it like the housing czar or whatever, This that particular role. Um, and one of his key platforms was housing affordability. And when we sit here today, the city is probably more, unaf more unaffordable than it's ever been. W where do you think things started going wrong? Well, I mean, I, I know whenever I hear that, I think people must have said, well, boy, you really shouldn't talk about how you were in charge of housing and economic development for so long in New York if we haven't made any strides. I think it's more complicated than that. One of the reasons why the city is, quote unquote, more unaffordable right now um, is really the direct result of a lack of production for the past three or four years, right? I mean, you don't have to be a PhD in urban economics or supply and demand to understand that the population has continued to grow much faster than even the demographers thought when we were looking at this 
2013, 2014. You add on top of that the fact that, A, literally, the sort of immigration um, over the past decade has been substantially higher than what the demographers predicted, um, and way less out-migration, notwithstanding that sort of little bump of COVID, like, oh, everybody's moving to the Hamptons or moving to Nashville or whatever. All that stuff gets a lot of play in the press, but the truth of the matter is population is substantially up. We're at officially almost 9 million now. And as you know, we also have a lot of folks who we don't count, right? So we have a city that's bursting at the seams. Um, and the fundamental issue has always been that New York City has not been able to produce enough housing. And so what I would say was a great success and continues to be a huge success until the recent political drama, which we can talk about, is that we set a pro-development um, agenda in place and a pro-development agenda that for the first time in New York required that there would be affordable housing with that growth. And that has in fact borne real fruit. So the proportion of affordable housing units has increased as a percentage of the stock. And the fact that now we're at a slump because of interest rates and because of the pandemic and a lot of other political stuff, um, I still think you have to have the essential blueprint for growth. Right. New York City can't control capital markets writ large. Capital, New York City can't control if the Ukraine is you know, now the center of a lot of the market-based issues we see globally. And so I think that New York City's job is to set an agenda and to provide the tools that they can in order to incentivize development. And simultaneously, also make sure that the folks who are living here in New York can continue to afford to live here. And that also raises complicated political issues, which are not, unfortunately, all in New York City's control. It has to do with state politics and national politics. So it could have been a lot worse, basically. It could have been a lot worse. Um, and by the way, when Donald Trump was in the White House, it was a lot worse. You know, you're beginning to see um, some of the money that is uh, coming out of the federal government for infrastructure and for affordable housing begin to trickle out, right? These things unfortunately don't happen overnight. And part of the challenge of being in the housing development business is that housing finance doesn't um, pay for the infrastructure, doesn't pay for the sores, the streets, all the other pieces of the puzzle that make development possible. And so with a really pro-infrastructure federal government finally, you're gonna see some of these larger projects begin to come together because the funding is available to create the pads, if you will, for more housing. So um, I really do think that if we don't screw up the politics too badly locally and at the state level, we're actually in a good spot right now to think big and do big projects because we have a federal partner and we have a city that I think most people now would feel is not only are we not going down the toilet, we're still the preeminent city in the country and maybe in the world. When did you notice um, the conversation around development change? Politically, like socially? You know, I think there's a couple of things at work. I mean, on the residential side, I think that, again, um, affordable housing is so hard to find, or housing that is affordable is so hard to find for New Yorkers that there becomes a kind of a distrust of the system and that the system is totally wired in favor of the super wealthy. And so what happens is that any kind of attempts to promote development get conflated with this sort of, why am I walking around New York City and seeing $30 million condos rising above Central Park and yet nobody in my family can find an apartment that they can afford? I think there's a kind of a visceral reaction to a lot of the built environment being for the wealthy. 
And again, it continuing to be really hard for regular New Yorkers. Wages have simply not risen as fast as rents. And so it's just the gulf just grows and grows and grows. And so I think people, understandably, just get really pissed off, right? And when you're pissed off, you channel your anger at certainly very visible signs of wealth. And I think that New York does tend to associate building projects with wealth, as opposed to building projects being growing community assets and growing neighborhoods. And I think that that's a conversation that we all have to engage in, is that building isn't per se just for the rich. And expanding our housing stock and investing in our neighborhoods and desegregating our neighborhoods and having you know, people who have higher incomes live in what more low-income neighborhoods isn't about destroying those neighborhoods. It's about saying those neighborhoods are valuable resources for all of us. And we should be talking about what does a pro-growth agenda look like, not screw the rich because some $30 million condo is vacant, you know, over Central Park West. Like, that's just a scapegoat, right? That doesn't solve any issues. But I do think that those are really easy things in tough times for people to obsess about. You mentioned not screwing up the politics. <laughs> As we speak, the state legislature is negotiating the budget, right? So far, most of the governor's proposals have been rejected. Her plan to extend 421A deadline by four years, um, that's been knocked back. Um, they've rejected her idea to increase housing density near transit hubs um, and to raise New York City's cap on floor area ratio. Do you have any hope of any real policies, real effective policy changes this year? Um, I do have hope. I think that there's been a huge amount of focus on getting it, quote, done in the budget. Um, and that also stems from... But getting what done? <laughs> getting done. Well, getting any or all of these things done. Um, because I think over the past decade in the Cuomo administration, he was very focused on using the budget as a way to do legislative action as opposed to do the budget. But in real life, as we like to say, those issues around legislative actions, like extending 421A, like removing the FAR cap, like really thinking more holistically about how we can incentivize and or require TOD development, those are really traditionally and should be legislative actions. So I think that what's happening, I think there's a lot going on, but I think that just because she may not be able to get many of these things done in the budget, it doesn't mean that it's dead. I think what it means is that the legislative branch is reasserting their power in a post-Cuomo world and saying, we're not just gonna be stuck in a situation where you can ram this stuff down our throat. I think it's less merit-based and more politically based. That said, it is absolutely, and I cannot say enough about how strong a person Kathy Hochul is, to even begin to take on what I call the suburban, no development over my dead body military industrial complex. That's really tough for a first term Democrat um, in parts of the state where those people aren't even pretending that they would embrace any sort of growth. I mean, it is really, really raw politics. And I think you have to commend her, even if she can't get it done this year, for putting those issues on the table and really forcing people to think deeply about what their values are and also open up some really clear schisms between the city and the suburbs. And I think that's an important debate to have even if it doesn't get done. So if it doesn't get done by the budget deadline, whenever that is, even though it could be 
blown anyway. Right. It can still happen this session, right? Something will definitely happen, right? The session won't be done until the end of June. Um, and I am very confident that some package of housing initiatives and reforms will come together. For those of us in business, we used to call it the big ugly. The big ugly is ugly for a reason. It may wind up being a smaller ugly, but I don't think that given the unbelievable amount of focus on these issues, that the business community, that the mayor, the governor, and the legislature um, have now made housing one of, let's say, their top three, there's no way they can all get out of session just kicking the can down the road and saying, we'll come back next year. Something's gonna happen. I just think it's not clear that it's all gonna happen in the budget. It didn't happen last year, though. I mean, good cause. Legal Aid told me they were convinced, and they'd been part of drafting that legislation, they were convinced it would pass this year, and it didn't. Well, it's still on the table. Um, good cause is still on the table. Remember, last year, Kathy had not actually been an elected governor. That's true. These things matter. Politics is also a lot of posturing, right, and power games, all fair. Um, she's a first-time elected female governor in a state that's been run by a lot of pretty intense guys for a long period of time. And she's got an amazing team, largely all women. Um, she's got some real allies in the legislature, but she also has some really complicated politics. And so I don't think that we should be holding her to a standard that we wouldn't hold any other first-term governor, who, by the way, was from Buffalo, not from New York City, the center of power, with all of those relationships that come with being a New York City-based person. I think we really have to be honest also about what the sort of fundamental power dynamic is between the private sector and the public sector, and it's very different with the Hopeful administration than it had been with the Cuomo administration. So do you feel like the veil's fallen a little bit and those conversations are happening in a more open forum now? I feel like it's a lot more open. I mean, I've been in politics and in and out of politics a long time, and I would say certainly during Cuomo land, and I was up there negotiating on behalf of the city quite often, this is so much more transparent and open book. The fact that we're even having a conversation about the big ugly, like in Cuomo land, you could have your legs chopped off for even saying the word big ugly. Mm -hmm. So I think that we've come a long way. And in any very complex situation, not everybody's gonna be happy. But I definitely think that we're gonna see some movement on issues that heretofore have not been, they've sort of been brushed under the rug. Looking back, um, you know, a lot's been made about the relationship between Hochul and Mayor Eric Adams, that it is they get on well, they see it eye to eye, very different to what was reportedly a frosty relationship between Cuomo and um, Bill de Blasio. And real estate particularly says how wonderful that is. But we haven't really seen anything practically happen as a result of that. I mean, last year, according to reports, Eric Adams went up there to talk about 421A and nothing happened. I mean, does it make much difference if they're getting on, quote unquote? I think that's a really good question. I mean, I think I, I, I think it is true that they, quote unquote, get along. Yeah. And, 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 if you're, and that's always a good thing, right, as opposed to a bad thing. Because a lot of what actually gets done in the world doesn't actually get done, you know, in an overt sort of external way, right? There's a lot of stuff that happens behind the scenes where agencies are working together. The bosses, obviously, when I worked for Bill de Blasio, the relationship with the Cuomo people was so bad at, at certain points that you know it was almost like they wouldn't do it, it was it was just childish at some level right and so a lot of what could have been done faster better cheaper more efficiently you know didn't get done because of all of their sort of political bullshit between them why didn't they like each other good uh, that i don't know there are a lot of books there are a lot of books to be written about these alpha males i mean okay. god help us all right. if we can figure it out mm -hmm. but i think that so you know i do think they like i think that eric adams and kathy hoko like each other 
I think that the agencies are absolutely working much, much um, more in sync with each other. Um, and so I think that that's really positive, and you don't see that in any sort of like big headline kind of way, but it makes life a lot easier for the folks who are in the trenches doing the work. And I do think that when the quote big ugly gets negotiated, um, there will be a adult conversation about what is possible and what ultimately can benefit both the governor and the mayor, as opposed to, you know, one feeling like they have to pull one over the other, right? It's tough enough with the legislature because you're dealing with all these constituencies around the state, but like for the, for the governor and the mayor to be allied on a lot of these issues, um, they may not both get what they want, but it's not going to be a situation, I don't think, where it's like, I'm going to screw you just to screw you. And that certainly has been more the framing over the past decade um, than it should be. It's just not the way to do government. What do you think is going to happen with um, a good cause? You know, I think that's... That's a, a big question. Um, Real estate I, is terrified of good they're cause. They're terrified of it. I, as I understand, they characterize it as sort of the camel's, you know, the camel's nose in the tent or whatever right. The, right. the right metaphor is. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, the various provisions that are floating around, and I think there's a lot of people with a lot of different versions of this. I mean, as an investor, um, the notion that, you know, you might limit rent increases for tenants who are in good standing and paying their rent and are like nice regular people who work hard every day and right now don't have the right to stay in their apartment, you know, it doesn't strike me as crazy that people who are in good standing in the United States of America and work hard should be able to stay in their apartment if they've been good tenants. It also doesn't strike me as unreasonable that you could limit to some extent how much money they would be asked to pay to stay. There's a big, big range and I think that what happens in all these conversations is because there were some legitimate concerns about the changes made to rent stabilization in 2019, people are freaked out about the idea of good cause. But in reality, any responsible underwriter or lender shouldn't be underwriting more than 3 or 4% rent growth a year anyway. So if the upper um, or the outer limit to any increase is something like anywhere between 6 and 10 or whatever the numbers are that are floating around, what are they scared of, right? That almost implies that they're up to no good because the math works at a 3 or 4% a year increase in rent. So I always turn the question around to them. What are they so worried about? So you're not scared of it? I'm not scared of it. I think that in the United States of America, mm -hmm. there is enough money and enough wealth that we should be able to figure out how to support a housing stock that is reasonably maintained and allows the private sector to make a reasonable return on their rental housing stock, which is I consider urban infrastructure like any other form of infrastructure, and be able to balance those two things and not have families who are busting their gut every day feel like they don't have housing stability. Housing stability seems to me to be a reasonable public good that the private sector should contribute to in some way. That doesn't mean that developers can't make a bajillion dollars a year selling $30 million condos or bringing in the office market. That's fine. Still make a squillion dollars. <laughs> and by the way, if you're a good landlord running a good building and you can raise your rent 6, 7, 8%, which is much higher than rent stable, you should be able to make a pretty decent return. 
And, and if you don't want to just make a decent return, then don't be in the rental housing business. So you don't buy this, oh, people will lose their buildings, will be, it'll be a disaster, they operate on... I mean, someone said to me yesterday that people operate on really thin margins. Some do, and I think, the, I think there are legitimate issues with how the rent stabilization law was amended in 2019, mm -hmm. how, which is also where the, where the devil gets really into the details on good cause, right? Because if what they do is actually replicate exactly what they did in rent state, I do think there's a problem because the incentives are so skewed now against making improvements and maintaining your property. And there isn't necessarily enough of a cushion when you have an enormous spike in energy prices or interest rates. But that's where like-minded like people who are trying to get to the finish line and understand how to balance the interests of the private sector and the public sector appropriately Good cause, in my humble opinion, could be an opportunity to sort of set a new third way of how you would do these things in a way that, again, does provide the proper incentives to maintain your stock, does allow people to make a reasonable return. It's no different than the often lauded Michelama program. Everybody talks about how great Michelama was. You know what Michelama was? It was a capped 6% return. Really? And now, if you said to somebody, I want to make a 6% IRR on multifamily rental, they'd look at you like you were a crazy person. So part of what needs to happen here is recalibrating what has happened, that it, rental housing has become one of these asset classes where people start to make a shitload of money. Mm -hmm. And I would say that given the crisis we have right now, that that's not an asset class I would want to encourage people to try to make a shitload of money. Because it's often put as like, oh, the advocates went crazy and they, they're trying to stop everyone making money. It was like maybe in some ways there was a bit of craziness on the real estate side too. One thousand. Well, because what happened is that became, as, as rental housing became more and more of an institutionalized asset class, right? The, and look, at, I, I, I worked at a big firm. I have friends who work at big firms. There's nothing wrong with real estate private equity um, trying to drive returns. The problem is that historically, real estate private equity was really about commercial property. <laughs> Um, hotels, etc. right? And so what happened is as these rental properties began to become more, this is what's happened in the single family rental market as well. So I think that you do need guardrails around these things because these are human beings, yeah. right? Why do, why do we have regulation for anything? We choose what to regulate because there's a public um, purpose in the regulation. I frankly don't care how much somebody has to pay to stay at the Mandarin Oriental. Like that's not like a big thing that keeps me up late at night. But I think for rental housing, the public does have an obligation to say enough is enough and there's a base case at which people who are in good standing need housing stability or else we don't have a city. When we talk about the city and, and city policies, what do you make of the council's approach to approving developments? We, we have seen a number get across the finish line, but only after pressure from the mayor. Yeah, that's politics. I mean, I applaud the mayor for exerting some pressure on council people to make a deal and not just, as we used to say, sort of play to the cheap, she cheap seats or go to the lowest common denominator. It's always easier as a politician to be like, I told them no, as opposed to, guess what? I just approved a deal where there's 30% affordable housing. Like that, so I think, you know, it's just, in the sense it's politics and the fact that the mayor is willing to use some of his political capital to lean on some council people to say, you know what, take a victory lap for 30%. By the way, 20 years ago, there wouldn't have been any affordable housing in that building, 
right? And so I think that I do, I do think that the mayor's taking a very positive approach to getting these deals approved. And I'm beginning to see some council members believe what I believe, which is, you know, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, number one. And number two, it's really important that we have mixed income housing. It's not an either or. Both is exactly right. Because, you know, we look at that development in Harlem, which is currently operating as a truck stop. That's some raw politics right there. But then we look at, say, um, Innovation Queens, which was approved relatively soon after it. And I know the developer at Harlem, he said that he was a sacrificial lamb. You know, that people freaked out when they saw that that got knocked back. Do you think that that's happening? Do you think people do see something and get approved and go, oh, God, we've got to approve more stuff? I mean, I think it'd be hard to draw direct causation between those two things, right? Anybody who doesn't get what they want has to sort of explain why they didn't get it, right? As opposed to, maybe I could have done this differently, I could have negotiated differently. Um, and the projects are very, very different, are in very different communities. Um, and so I think that's very hard to compare these two things. That said, I do believe that um, other council people who are progressive and have really good values should take note of what happens when you don't do what's possible and you only want to do what is impossible, which is have every single building built in your neighborhood be 100% affordable and also be affordable to everybody you know and not just the lowest, lowest income people who you also complain you don't want in your neighborhood. So since they don't even know exactly 100% what it is they want, it's also really easy to say no to what's on the table. But I see just a little bit, which is why I can still get out of bed every morning. There does appear to be some pragmatism coming into the discussion. And I do credit Mayor Adams with that creating that space and place, and also Speaker Adams, who appears to be also willing to realize that the perfect can't be the enemy of the good. And it's not even clear what the perfect is anymore for a lot of these. Like a, a fully affordable housing development is probably not. Well, it would be okay if it were affordable to exactly who I think they think things should be affordable to, but it's not also okay if you wanted to put a lot of folks who are coming right out of the shelters. So I don't know exactly, I don't want to speak for them, and they are not monolithic. There's a lot of different views out there, but I, I do think that sometimes the progressives get themselves a little bit into a pretzel, talking about all the things they don't want, and then when you're presented with something they do want, it's not exactly what they want. Which is why it's all the art of the compromise. I've heard you say that um, as a woman with considerable experience, it takes you longer to raise money than a man with, say, a contemporary amount of experience to you. So in fact, I, I heard you say that it took you 18 months to raise what a male peer would take maybe a couple of calls to raise. <laughs> yeah. well, how can women overcome, how can more women join this industry when there's that sort of hurdle? Well, I mean, you have to be, um, I guess you have to be a bit of a crazy person because it is really, really hard. You have to be a little crazy and be willing to, as somebody said to me, Alicia, you have to learn to love the no. Mm. I'm like, love the no? Ugh, I don't like that. That really sucks. Um, look, it's, it's, not, um, it's not universally true, right, that for every single woman it's harder than for every single man. But I'm pretty sure that I'm about 99% right that it's harder. Um, because if it was harder for me, and I do have all of that, I have all of the privilege and credentials and everything that anybody could ever ask for. Like, what else could you ask for? Mm -hmm. Deputy mayor of housing and economic development for six years with a pretty good track record. 
ran an enormous business at Goldman Sachs for a decade, an Ivy League lawyer. I mean, like, what else are you supposed to do in order to have a seat at the table? And if I found it challenging to start my business and raise capital, when I look at other people who have similar backgrounds and resumes to me who are men, it must be really hard for a lot of women to get the balls, as it were, to, to go into it. And so part of what I do every day is try to, A, buck up and try to support other women, and B, build my company to be filled with all these women who, not that I want them to leave, but if they leave to go form their own companies because they feel that they have a sense of um, opportunity now that they wouldn't have had, that would be pretty awesome. I mean, it is, it's like pick and shovel. You don't gotta keep going. What's the big complaint though? Like what is the big challenge to getting the money? I just think they don't think, I honestly, I don't know. I, you know what, you should ask a guy that question. Why is it? Like also, why do I have to explain why people shouldn't believe that I'm as good an, an yeah. investor as a person who was exactly the same person, you know, who had my jobs? I don't know the answer to that, but I know that it's real and I know that often women are forced to try to explain what is clearly something that they are doing, not something I'm doing. There's so much discussion on women and people of color in this business, but there are still very few women and people of color in this business. I mean, I was just looking at some figures the other day, black and Hispanic business owners make up like 1% of real estate, which is kind of crazy. Yeah, I think we have, I mean, we have data that, and I always say, what's data? And then I'm like, okay, so maybe we're moving up, you know, 0.1. I mean, it's a joke, right, when you think about it. Um, what would you consider acceptable progress? Because it's not obviously gonna happen overnight, it's like affordable housing. No, it's not going to happen overnight, but I mean, at some point you have to really shock the system. I mean, this is getting ridiculous. Um, and it can't just be like a trend of like, and right after Me Too, it's like everybody's running around like crazy people to hire women, or God forbid, after George Floyd and some of the other more, you know, chilling sort of um, honest conversations that people in the country are having about race. That doesn't mean that like then everybody runs around like a crazy person and tries to, you know, do deals with African Americans. Mm -hmm. This is, it is a long game but also just blow it up a little bit. Like, you know, I used to say to people, people say, oh, I can't hire any women, there are no women, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, well, what do you mean there are no women? Here's a pile of resumes. There are 100 people in this pile. And if there's only one or two women, then throw the whole fucking pile into the garbage and start again, right? Because it, it becomes like a thing. And, and I always, always say, and by the way, just because you hire a woman or you hire a person of color, that doesn't mean you're, quote, stuck with them forever, right? Well, that's the other thing. And I have fired women, and I will no doubt fire more women. I'm sure there are people of color who work for me who I've fired. But if you don't hire them, where are we ever going to go? And so you do have to say, I am making a deliberate choice to hire people who are not like everybody else in this business. And that's just, like, got to be, unfortunately, you can't mandate that. That has to be coming from either enlightened white men or people like me who just yell and scream all the time. What's the next big thing we'll be seeing from the company, do you expect? Um, well, I think, you know, we're pretty excited that we're gonna, um, by the end of 2023, hit a big milestone in terms of the amount of capital we have under management, mm -hmm. and a couple of really, really big projects where we're also acting as co-developer that I think are really emblematic of the thesis, mm -hmm. which is that you can develop really interesting projects that serve a wide range of people who need quality housing, intersperse it with really cool retail and other um, programs within the, within the developments themselves that enhance the value not just of the building, 
but also become seen as an asset to a neighborhood. Right? I want to sort of begin to try to change the, the dialogue around development. And you'll also see us really making sure that the work we do really does include um, folks from different backgrounds. Right? And it's not just whether you're a woman or a person of color. It's where you grew up. It's whether or not your parents were immigrants. It's how you think about what, are, what kind of an American city do we want to build. And I think that that is um, a really complicated exercise, and it's really hard. But if we can get a couple of these big projects, not just like small one-offs, and begin to show that this is, a, it's almost, I like to think of it as a new asset class within real estate itself, right? Sort of socially impactful real estate that's profitable, but also respectful of a longer term equitable growth strategy. I think those two things can walk hand in hand, and then more investors and more developers should want to be in that part of our ecosystem. Alicia, thank you very much. Thank you. That's Alicia Glenn. She's the founder and managing principal of M Squared. 